0: Thank you. That was amazing. I'm often caught off guard by our transcendent choir, so thank you for that holy moment. Friends, will you join me in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable In your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So the events recalled by today's Gospel lesson is one that we hold on to dearly in the Christian tradition. The story of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt is a beloved and humble image. And for us, it ushers in the beginning of Holy Week. However, this is not a story to be underestimated. This is not merely a story about Jesus' humility and a call for peace. There's more going on here than first meets the eye. So don't be fooled that the procession we reenacted by parading around the sanctuary singing and smiling at our cute children waving palms is merely Christian kitsch. At the time of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the city is packed with Jewish pilgrims and Roman soldiers. The atmosphere is pregnant with the potential for a political uprising. And up to this point, Jesus has been very deliberate to instruct his disciples not to spread any word about the great works that he has been performing. And yet it is under these anxious and turbulent circumstances that Jesus decides to enact a very public moment of his ministry, and perhaps his most brilliant act of political drama. There are only a few verses of this passage that actually recount Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Instead, most of the story is preoccupied with all of the arrangements that he makes, with the instructions that he gives to the disciples. Jesus meticulously plans this procession. Theologian Ched Myers observes that Jesus carefully crafts a piece of street theater. And as a director, he takes creative license and deploys comedic irony to undermine the imperial forces at play, to underscore that his authority, his power, comes from another source. Jesus wants to connect his entrance to messianic prophecy. It harkens back to the ancient Israelite stories about the arrival of a heroic figure following a military victory. These stories of triumphant conquest would be familiar to the crowd welcoming Jesus and to Mark's contemporary audience. Now, the details vary with each story, but the narrative arc remains intact. And in key respects, it resembles a military parade. After the conquest, the victor enters into the city amid cheering throngs. He is joyously acclaimed. And then he performs a sacrificial ritual of thanksgiving at a religious shrine to thank God for all of the slaughtered thousands. So it's telling that Jesus begins his procession at the Mount of Olives the exact location from which people expected the final battle for Jerusalem's liberation to begin. And yet, from there, the contrasts become clear. Jesus enters the city not riding his own noble steed, but instead riding someone else's colt, a baby donkey probably not even big enough to prevent Jesus' feet from dragging on the ground. And so when it's time for our hero to head to the shrine for the sacrificial Thanksgiving, he looks around at the place, inspects it, and seems to say, Well, I guess it's getting late. (laughs) The party's over. Let's pack it in, fellas. we are left with this unsatisfied feeling. Is this what the disciples and the crowd expected? Were they surprised? Are they disappointed? Are they in on Jesus' joke? Now the crowd undoubtedly boasts some of the same sorts of outsiders, that Jesus has kept company with throughout his journey. Sinners, the dispossessed, the sick and blind, women and orphans, foreigners and refugees. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem, these are the people who bestow him with all the trappings of a great military parade. The crowd spreads palms and cloaks before him as a symbol of honor, and they shout, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! The air is abuzz with laughter and elation and anticipation. Some in the crowd believe that Jesus' arrival marks the entrance of a new political era. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan posit that this curious celebration does not happen in isolation, but rather functions as a counter-protest. Jesus is not juxtaposing his entrance with just with those of ancient Israelite history, but he is also mimicking an imperial procession led by Pontius Pilate entering Jerusalem from the other side at the exact same time. Hosanna directly means save us. But here, it also subversively means, throw the rascals out. People are bringing great anticipation and expectation along with their palms and cloaks. Folks are looking for political salvation, specifically salvation from the Roman Empire. Jesus, however, does not fulfill their expectations by overthrowing the Roman government. This is not Jesus' mission. He is not that sort of Messiah. And so there's a dramatic turn in how people respond to Jesus. Within the week, their acclaim and praise turn into humiliation and mockery. The theologian Margaret Farley observes, just as we do not adequately understand the suffering of Jesus unless we see how it reaches through the centuries to the suffering of people today, we do not adequately understand the humiliation of Jesus and the truth of it, dignity within indignity, unless we witness it in the lives of those who are otherwise judged among the humiliated today. And friends, we know those who are humiliated in our midst. Sometimes we've been the humiliated ones. They are the people who we single out as different or unfit, the people with whom we share our suspicious stares and demeaning glances, those who we shame in the name of social order and etiquette, those who we abandoned and want out of sight, out of mind. those we stigmatize with our self-righteousness. And we like to believe that we are better than the judgmental ones, those people. We are better than the ones in the headlines, on Fox News, on Twitter. They are the ones that do the humiliation. No, not us. We here, we here in Massachusetts, we here at Harvard, we protest. We protest for transformed economics, immigration, environment, foreign policy, and gun regulations. We are not susceptible to humiliating others. We're inclusive. We champion diversity. We are progressive in our politics. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus did not have strong beliefs, a strong sense of what is right and wrong, a strong sense of ethics. In fact, his beliefs took him to the cross and led to his death. And yet he refused to be entangled in political partisanship or polarization. Forces of false judgment and suspicion, servile fear and violence are indeed to be named for what they are. And they are to be resisted. But they cannot be resisted with more force and more might. Self-righteous resistance can come to resemble the patterns of evil that it seeks to overthrow. Farley goes on to say, through the death of Jesus, all death is overwhelmed. Through the humiliations of Jesus, all humiliations can be transformed. This is not because of the death or the humiliations, but because of the love that cannot be broken. Somehow we seem to always get wrong what is ultimately powerful. Jesus exerted a power that was not understood then and might not even be understood now. And the comedy that underlies this story is not for its own sake, but to lower our defenses long enough for us to recognize this truth. Jesus is not your routine liberator. He doesn't act the way he is supposed to. Judge him by ordinary conventions of what God's anointed one should be. And you will get him wrong every time. Amen.